Well, if you have a Bible, could you please take it and turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John, and specifically here in the Upper Room Discourse. Um, The Upper Room Discourse, which stretches from John 13 through John 17, uh, offers instruction to the disciples of Jesus and to Christians throughout the ages about how we are to live in light of the departure of Jesus. This block of teaching helps us to answer the question, how do we follow Jesus and how do we continue his mission despite the fact that he is no longer present with us in bodily form? The second part of the discourse, which began in chapter 15, focuses on on the sending of the disciples into the world to continue the ministry of Jesus, a ministry of proclaiming the good news of salvation through faith in him. For we in this room who are Christians, living without the physical presence of Jesus doesn't seem strange because it's in fact all that we have ever known as Christians. But the disciples had had walked beside the incarnate Christ. They had eaten with him. They had listened to him teach. Therefore, his, his coming departure, it saddened them. And, and the weight of the task that they were being given intimidated them. Fear also filled their hearts because Jesus, just in the verses that we looked at um, this past Sunday, Jesus made, made it clear that they most certainly would be persecuted by the world for following him and for proclaiming salvation in his name. In verse four, he told them that that he had not said anything about this persecution reality at the beginning because he was still with them. While he was on the earth as as their leader, he was the target of the persecution that arose and, and he could, in a sense, protect the disciples in various ways because he was there, he was, he was present. But when he left, they would become the targets of the hatred and the persecution and Jesus would not be there to protect them. All of these factors then mark a transition in the ministry of Jesus and the life of his disciples. We could even say that this marks a moment of transition in salvation history, as it were. We might think about parents and children and transitions. There are various stages in a child's development when the relationship between a parent and a child changes. Some of us who are are adults have experienced this, and some of us who are kids are experiencing these changes. Now, for instance, when a child gets on the bus and heads to school for the first time, there's a change in the relationship between a parent and a child. Or maybe when they ride their their bike to a friend's house for the first time, or when they learn to drive, or when they head off to college. In all of these stages, the relationship changes. Why? Well, because the parent is no longer physically present with the child. However, there's, there's hopefully instruction about how the child should behave in these new situations that, that, that goes with them even though mom and dad do not go with them. Parents send their children out on their own, but they do so trusting that they've given them the resources to be safe and successful in the world. So the disciples are are taking in the reality of Jesus' departure and his sending of them. And as that happens, they feel the weight of the task before them. And now they've come face to face with the world's hatred for them. And in light of all these changes, certainly some fear and anxiety overtakes them, which are emotions that we all know in our walk with Christ. Fear 
and anxiety. We, we feel the, the, the call of Christ on our lives. We feel this, this tension that arises in us and the difficulty that, it, that can come into our hearts because of what we're called to do. And therefore, Jesus, again, reminds them and reminds us of the resources that he has given to us. He reminds the disciples that he has been preparing them for this moment of, of sending them, just as a parent raises a child to send them into the world. And so too he has prepared us. Specifically here, he tells the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit is going to work alongside them. He's going to come and he's going to help convict the world and to lead those who trust in Christ into all truth. Though Jesus is leaving them, he will give them the resources that they need. And here he promises to give them his very spirit. And it's not just for the disciples then. The spirit's presence is the reality for every true follower of Jesus. Therefore, this passage helps us to see that when we feel alone, when we feel overwhelmed, at the call of Jesus on our lives, when we feel fearful at the opposition that comes with standing as a Christian, we can look to John 16, 5 to 15, and confidently trust that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, convicting the world and confirming the truth. We'll take that as our big idea, and it is a little big, so I'll say it a couple times. Uh, confidently trust, that's what I want us to do, confidently trust that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, Confidently trust that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, and what will he be, do, he be doing? He will be convicting the world and confirming the truth. Confidently trust that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, convicting the world and confirming the truth. That's what I want us to think about today. Let's read John 16, verses 5 through 15, and see just what our Savior is giving us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. I actually want to start in the second part of verse 4 of John 16. So if you have your, your Bibles, you can look there at John 16, beginning in the middle of verse 4. Jesus here in God's word says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, referring back to the, the, the fact that the world will hate you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Brothers and sisters, confidently trust that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, convicting the world and confirming the truth. As we look at the ministry of the Spirit that helps and supports us in the ministry that we're called to as followers of Jesus, let's notice first in verses five to seven that the Spirit is sent by the ascended Christ. 
the Spirit is sent by the ascended Christ. Jesus again makes it clear that he is going to be leaving the disciples and returning to the Father, which refers both to his crucifixion and his ascension. This is not completely new information about his leaving and the coming of the Spirit, but it's a reminder of what he's already taught them in chapter 14. As he's telling them this, Jesus curiously says, none of you asks me where I am going. That's curious because John 13, 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? (laughs) It sounds like they did ask him where he was going. Uh, So what's being said here? Well, the best way I think to understand this is that the emphasis of Peter's question and the focus of the concern of the disciples was on the loss to themselves that Jesus' departure was going to bring. In fact, when Peter asks that question in chapter 13, his goal is to figure out if Jesus is actually going to leave and then to try to keep Jesus from leaving, even if it will cost him his own life. The disciples were concerned about Jesus leaving, but they were not seeking to understand what it meant for the overall mission of Jesus, nor did they seem to be concerned with why Jesus would be leaving at that particular moment. They didn't ask Jesus where he was going in an effort to grasp God's mission in the world or with an interest as as far as what was best for Jesus, but they asked him as a way to hold on to Jesus and to keep him from leaving them. Verse 6 would seem to support this understanding. Verse 6 says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. There Jesus says that his words have simply led to them being sad, not to them having curiosity about what God might be doing through the departure of Jesus. We shouldn't be too hard on the disciples. We might look at this passage and and wonder how, how could they miss what was happening Why didn't they see the benefit that the departure of of Jesus would would bring? Why didn't they understand that the power of the Holy Spirit? But just remember how much hindsight we're coming with, right? We we see the cross, we see the resurrection, we see the ascension of Jesus, we see the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, even the prophecies concerning, concerning the return of Christ. We stand at a point in biblical revelation from which we can see so much of the mountain range of salvation history. The disciples, as Jesus said he was leaving, they primarily saw their friend and their teacher and their leader leaving them. And as he's leaving them, he gives them a task that seemed light years beyond their ability. And then he says, oh yeah, with this task, you're going to be persecuted, no doubt. Of course they're distressed. Of course they want to keep him with them. We should also have empathy for the disciples because we, underst- we understand a focus on our individual concerns above the broader mission of God in the world. We understand what it's like to be concerned about us and not necessarily concerned about what God is doing in the world. In fact, as we think about the sending of the Spirit, as I talk about that, our initial reaction, our initial focus may be primarily on the Spirit's work in our particular lives, not on his work in the world at large. When I talk about the Spirit, we, we want to know how the coming of the Spirit benefits us, well, which it does. Yet this focus may lead us to be blind to how the coming of the Spirit actually leads to the glory of, the, of God, how it leads to the growth of Jesus' kingdom in this world. In our self-centeredness, we may actually miss the, the broader mission that God is accomplishing and seeking to accomplish through the departure of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit simply because we want to know what he's going to do for us. 
And yet, as we'll see, this broader vision seems to be where Jesus is directing our focus. Verse 7 reiterates something that Jesus said in John 14, 16, and 17, namely that it's to the advantage of the disciples for Jesus to leave because when he leaves, it means that he can send the Spirit. Now, I don't think that that means that, that the Spirit and the Son can't coexist in the same place. That, that's, I don't think that's what's being said here, as if Jesus has to leave so that there's room for the Spirit to, to come um, Rather, it's more of a necessity with regard to this plan of redemption that, that God has, has laid out. And in that plan, the Son has come to earth. This is part of the plan. The Son has come to earth to live and to die and to rise again to accomplish our salvation. Jesus has broken into time and space. That's what we just celebrated. He broke into time and space so that he could fulfill all righteousness die as a substitute in our place, and then rise again victorious over death so that now he can offer us his righteousness, so that now he can offer us forgiveness, so that now he can offer life to everyone who would repent from from their sins and trust in him. And having accomplished this work of salvation, Jesus then ascends to the Father, and they together now send the Spirit to indwell every believer. As I was thinking about that, I thought, well, there's a really nice summary of this fathomless plan of redemption that we sing in very simple words. It goes, thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. That's the plan of redemption in one simple sentence. Jesus has accomplished our salvation because the Father sent him to do so, and now the Spirit comes and to to finish the work, to continue the spread of the kingdom through the people of God whom he now indwells. And that is the stage of salvation history that we find ourselves in. So why is it to our advantage for Jesus to leave? Again, this question comes up because we imagine, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was here? Wouldn't it it be better for me if Jesus was still on the earth? Why is it to our advantage for Jesus to leave? Why? so that the very presence of Christ through the gift of the Spirit can fill all believers at all times and empower all of us to glorify God as we proclaim the truth of the gospel in this world. It is good for Jesus to leave. And and so that he can send the Spirit because the Spirit will allow us to stand firm in the face of the hatred and the persecution that we will encounter and to effectively continue the ministry that Jesus began. It is this mission that we're invited into and that we're equipped for by the coming of the Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit helps us in our individual daily lives, but he is also empowering us to take part in the worldwide mission of God. Well, how will he do this? Notice in verses 8 to 11 that the Spirit will convict the world the Spirit will convict the world. This seems to be uh, the only place in Scripture that we're told about how the Spirit works in the world and not in believers. It's kind of unique in that sense. Jesus says here that, that when the Spirit comes into the world, he will convict the world. Other translations say he will prove the world wrong or he will reprove the world. Remember, the world here refers to people in rebellion and opposition to their creator. So the Spirit's ministry to the world will be one in which he convicts the world, convincing people that they are guilty 
and that they are in need of repentance. Does that sound harsh? Or maybe just negative? It could, but, but if people are going to be saved, then they have to recognize that they're lost. And they will only recognize that through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. If you're following a trail in the woods and you assume you know where you're going, when actually you don't know where you're going, you, you won't ask for directions, will you? If you think you know where you're going, you're going to keep walking. But if you're actually lost, what's happening? You're getting more and more lost. And so there's a grace for someone to say, hey, you're lost. If that's true, then the revelation that we are lost, that we are condemned, that we are convicted by our sin is a grace. So the Spirit comes to graciously and compassionately convict the world. That's why he's here, to show the world that they, that we, apart from Christ, are guilty. Jesus explains three ways that we, he will convict the world. Did you see that? It's like it's laid out for a preacher, isn't it? He gives you just three points right there, hands them to me. Um, he's going to convict the world in three ways. First, he will convict the world concerning sin. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. This is the way we usually think about the conviction of the Spirit. He will help the world to see that they are in rebellion against God and against his holiness. But most importantly, he seems to be focused on convicting the world of their sin of unbelief. They do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe that he has come from the Father, that he has died in our place, that he alone can bring forgiveness to them. And the sin of rejecting Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of the Father in human form, is the greatest sin of all. All sin finds its roots in unbelief, and the Spirit convicts the world of the sin of rejecting Jesus and calls them to believe in him as their Messiah and Lord. He will convict the world of sin. Next, he will convict the world of righteousness. He will not only help the world see the way they actively rebel against God, but also the fact that even their righteousness is like filthy rags, as Isaiah says. Consider the Pharisees that Jesus so often spoke to who were convinced that their obedience to the commands of Moses made them acceptable to God, made them righteous. Or consider anyone who places their hope in the good things that they do, which is, I think, what we all naturally are bent towards. Whether it's moral purity or acts of compassion or any other ways that the world might define goodness and righteousness, we think that's what's going to make us acceptable to God. All this supposed righteousness is done by people in an effort to show themselves worthy of acceptance by others and worthy of acceptance by God himself but the Spirit exposes the way that all acts of righteousness done in our flesh fall short of the glory of God and are incapable of saving us. That is part of the Spirit's work, to reveal the worthlessness of righteousness apart from Christ. How does the Spirit do this? Notice in, in verse 10 what it says there, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. In his ministry, the life and the love of Jesus brought conviction to people during his ministry. But how is conviction going to come in his absence? If he's no longer here to live that righteous life, to live a life of love, how will conviction come? 
It would seem that it comes as the Spirit enables the followers of Jesus to walk in those same ways, to walk in true holiness and true love. Remember, that's one of the main commands of this passage, is to love one another. And as we love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us, and as we allow the Holy Spirit to make us even more holy, we bring conviction to the world through our words and our actions. This righteousness is a work of God's Spirit within us. Apart from salvation, the salvation we find in Jesus, and the power that comes from the Spirit, we are unable to do what God has called us to do. We will pile up righteous acts only to find that they are filthy rags. But now that Christ has come and has sent his Spirit, we experience the miracle of the new covenant, which includes a brand new heart, that is now capable of obeying God's call to righteousness. And as this heart leads us into spirit-empowered righteousness, that, that, that righteousness convicts the world of their false righteousness. I think often we talk about the hope that people will see our lives of holiness and love and they'll ask why we live in such a way so that we can point them to Jesus. Have you ever thought about evangelism in that way, that I, I live a life of holiness and righteousness and people say, why do you live in such a way? And I say, well, because Jesus has changed me. And that certainly is part of what the Spirit does according to these verses. But there's also conviction that comes in response to our righteousness. And when people are convicted, they usually don't come to us with curiosity, do they? They come with a little bit of anger. They don't really like their sin being exposed, their righteousness being exposed. There's a conviction that comes. Our lives of righteousness lived in the power of God's spirit may make people upset, but for it makes them curious. It ties in, I think, with some of the persecution that we've already talked about. But either way, whether they're upset or they're curious, we should be humbled and emboldened to walk in holiness and love by the power of the Spirit because such lives are a means through which God is going to convict the world and bring people to repentance. Our righteousness is not a personal badge of pride. It's not something that we do to, to make ourselves look good in this world. Our righteousness is a means of glorifying Christ and convicting the world and thereby drawing people to repentance and faith. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and finally of judgment. You see that in verse 11 concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Meaning, their, their false we're convicting the world of their false judgment of who Jesus is and also of the reality of the coming judgment because of that false judgment about Christ. We've seen in John's gospel how the religious leaders and people rejected Jesus, judging him to be a blasphemer or just crazy, and their false judgment led them to condemn Jesus to death. And yet, in his death, it's not Jesus who is ultimately condemned, but he ends up condemning the ruler of this world. And if the ruler of this world is condemned, then those that are in the world become doubly condemned. They stand underneath the guilt of their own sin. And they're also attached to a kingdom whose ruler has been defeated by Jesus. So the Spirit works to help the world to see that they are under condemnation. 
And unless they turn from their sin and they stop trusting in their own righteousness, then they will be eternally judged for their false judgment of Jesus. This is the work that the Spirit is sent into the world to do. A gracious, loving, powerful work of conviction, helping people to see their sinfulness, to see their inability to save themselves, and the fact that they are eternally condemned if they do not trust Christ. And it's this work that we are invited to partner with the Spirit in, to partner with him through our lives and through our words, to be a part of what God is doing through the Spirit to bring conviction into people's lives so that they might turn from sin and turn to Christ. And we are not alone in this, are we? If we were, we would be hopeless, hopeless, but we can confidently trust that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, convicting the world. But not only does he convict the world, he also confirms the truth in those who belong to Christ. So we see this finally in verses 12 to 15, that the Spirit will confirm the truth. The Spirit will confirm the truth. In verse 12, we're reminded that that this is all happening very close to Jesus' approaching death. The time is short for Jesus. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't have time to say everything that he needs to say to the disciples. Rather, I think it could be that Jesus, in a sense, has said everything that he can say up to this moment. That he said everything that's profitable in this moment before his crucifixion. But after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, there's, there's, there are more things that will still need to be said. And, and maybe more clarity that will be brought to the things that Jesus has already said. Remember, we talked about how this makes so much sense to us because we have this hindsight of having seen the cross, of having seen the ascension, of, of having seen um, the, the hope of his coming. But right now, this teaching is a bit blurry for the disciples, and yet the cross will help them to see things more clearly. But if Jesus is ascended, then who's going to bring this clarity? Well, the Spirit will. The Spirit will help them to understand everything that Jesus has said in light of the cross and the resurrection. The Spirit arrives in the lives of the apostles and in the life of every believer to guide us into truth. He is the Spirit of of truth. Now, as we saw in John 14, this could refer to the work of the apostles, I think, as they recorded the writings of the New Testament through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is not a way that the Spirit works in the present age, namely by revealing to us divinely inspired words of Scripture. It was an apostolic function. But we do know that the Spirit illumines us to understand the truth that the apostles have recorded for us. I think a key thing to notice here is that this is not new truth. It's truth that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The Spirit does just what Jesus did, namely, he only says what he hears from the Father, and according to verse 16, he only takes from Christ and he gives those truths to us. Not verse 16, verse 14. Uh, verse 15 kind of brings the Trinity together and we find that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all together working to guide us into truth, a truth that is consistently and that clearly comes from God alone. I think that phrase there is a little interesting where he says he will speak to you and declare to you things that are to come. I think it's interesting 
Is this some sort of special revelation about the future that we might have here in the present? Again, I don't think so because even this phrase finds its fulfillment in the scriptures. John himself experienced the revelation about the future, which is what he records for us in the book of Revelation. And yet even this future reality was spoken of by Christ. I think taken together, what we find is that the Spirit comes to the apostles and guides them into all truth such that that they record the words of the scriptures. And then the Spirit comes in a different but parallel way and guides us into truth by helping us to understand the scriptures. What a gift that is. What a gift not only to receive the very words of God through the inspiration of the scriptures, but then to be given the Spirit within us to help us understand and rightly apply the words of Scripture that he inspired. We might want some sort of unique revelation to us. That's certainly a desire within lots of people, some sort of unique revelation. Except as I process that, I think we fail to realize how shaky such revelations can be. How can we trust them completely in ourselves? How can we trust them completely in other people? Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol, uh, he writes about how Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the ghost of his old friend Jacob Marley. But when Jacob Marley shows up, Scrooge says, I don't believe it. And Marley says, well, why do you doubt your own senses? And Scrooge replies with one of my favorite parts uh, in that story. He says, because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. (laughs) And so too, our senses can be deceived by small things such that we believe what we believe is a revelation from God is maybe selfishly motivated or maybe just indigestion. So there's no need to look down, I don't think, on the scriptures as less flashy than some sort of personal revelation. They're actually more certain. You remember what Peter says? That in the scriptures, this is the prophetic word made more sure. Peter himself said, I was there. I was on the mountain. I saw him. This is better. This is better. This is the prophetic word made made sure. And Peter then says, which we would do well to pay attention. And we should pay attention to the scriptures and we should not pay attention to those who would say that the spirit is leading them into truth outside of the scriptures. That's crazy. The spirit, we're told here, says what Jesus says. He says what the father says. That's all that he says. He doesn't say anything contrary to what Christ says. There are those even who would say that the spirit reveals truth that contrasts with Christ and with the New Testament. But Jesus would say that such a spirit is not the spirit of Christ, it's the spirit of Antichrist or a spirit of self-interest. The spirit glorifies the Father. The spirit glorifies the Son. He doesn't demote the Son. He doesn't detract from Jesus. He doesn't make some other earthly teacher equal to Jesus. Never. That is not the spirit of God. Jesus is very clear. And so Alistair Begg in a sermon I was listening to said when we evaluate what people claim is a truth from the Spirit, we should ask these kinds of questions. Someone says, this is what the Spirit told me. How do I evaluate that? Well, you evaluate it first against the Scriptures, but then here's some good questions that that Alistair gives us. Does it make Jesus more precious? Does the thing that they're telling me make Jesus more precious? Does it make the Word more foundational? 
Does it make worship more crucial? Does it make fellowship more meaningful? These, says Alistair Begg, are the tests of, of a genuine work of the Spirit's ministry. So, as we come to the end of a calendar year, we look towards a new year filled with desire to walk in the ways of Jesus, to glorify the Father, to be filled with and led by the Spirit. Let's make some resolutions. Maybe you're not a resolution person, okay? That's fine. Here's some applications then. I'll couch them in the terms of resolution though, okay? What if we could resolve to live lives of holiness and love? We resolve to live lives of holiness and love, and our desire to live those lives is not for our own praise or our own glory, but for the glory of Christ empowered by his spirit. And our, des- it's, our desire is to live these lives so that the, the spirit could use us to lovingly convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment so that we could call them to repentance and guide them to the glorious truth of the gospel? Could the Spirit use our words and our actions in 2024 to see people convicted of their guilt before God and brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? What more could you ask for in 2024 than that your life of holiness and love would lead people to salvation in Christ? What better thing could we work and pray for so we can resolve to live lives of holiness and love. And through our lives and our words, we can resolve to boldly proclaim the hope of the gospel. Those things go hand in hand. We resolve to boldly proclaim the, whole, the hope of the gospel in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, and in all other places. Our words can be filled with the truth of the Spirit that he reveals to us so that our words glorify God and so that people are drawn to Christ to find life in him. And if we are going to proclaim the truth, then we're going to need to resolve to allow God's Spirit to guide us into truth. We need to resolve to allow God's Spirit to guide us into truth. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do it through his word. He will guide us into truth through the scriptures. As we read the scriptures in private devotions, as we read the scriptures with our loved ones, as we sit under the preaching of God's word, As we study God's word with one another, we open our lives to the spirit and we give him opportunity to lead us into truth. And so may our new year be marked by a love for the scriptures because they are what the spirit is going to use to guide us into all truth. Well, who knows what 2024 holds for us. But what we know from John 16, is that whatever it brings, we can confidently trust in this. We can confidently trust that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, convicting the world and confirming the truth. Let's take a moment of silence and allow God's Spirit to apply his word to our hearts, and then I will close us in prayer. But let's take a moment of silence for that purpose. Father, we thank you for giving us your Son and for leaving your Spirit until the work on earth is done. Thank you for the Spirit's convicting work. Thank you for those of us who have experienced that, who have seen our sin, who have seen 
our false righteousness, who have seen the reality of our judgment and have turned and trusted to in Christ, Lord, that is nothing of our own doing. It is all of your grace. I pray if there's anyone here who has not felt that conviction, Lord, that by your spirit you would accomplish that, even today, Lord, that they would see their sin, they would see their, their inability to do enough good works to save themselves. They would see that they are under judgment, but they would see Christ, that he has lived the perfect life. He offers us his righteousness, and that he has been judged in our place so that we can have life everlasting with him. Lord, what a beautiful gospel you have given us. Help us to partner with the Spirit in this work that you've given to us, that we would live lives of, of holiness and righteousness trusting that the Spirit will bring conviction and draw people to you. Lord, that we would be people who, who love the truth, who, who align ourselves with, with your word so that you can guide us into all truth and so that we might glorify you. So here we stand, Lord, at the end of, of one year looking into the new year and we ask for great things. We ask that you would use us in this wonderful work that you have been doing that you planned from before the foundation of the world and now that we are a part of through your very spirit dwelling within us. But as much as we long uh, to see Jesus, we know that it is good that he is gone so that the spirit can be here with us. And yet also, Lord, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring your kingdom on this earth in fullness. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.